0: In an article entitled, Moments of Startling Clarity, Dr. Steven Anderson writes of an experience he had while teaching a high school senior level philosophy class. He was beginning a new unit on ethics and he needed an attention grabber, something that would shock his students, that would force them to take a moral position. He wanted to find a ground zero on which they all agreed, and from that starting point, the class could go on to discuss the legitimacy of other moral judgments. Well, he decided to display a picture without comment. The photo was of Bibi Asia, an Afghani teenager who was forced to marry an abusive Taliban fighter. This man kept Bibi with her with his animals he treated her as one of the animals when Bibi tried to escape she was caught her tormentor chopped off her nose and ears and left her for dead she was taken to an american hospital where her life was saved it was obvious the students were moved by the photograph when they saw it some couldn't bear to look Anderson said he felt that the awful treatment of a girl so near the age of his students would be enough to induce an ethical outrage from his class. But the teacher wasn't prepared for the student's response. Dr. Anderson writes, They became confused. The students seemed not to know what to think. They spoke timidly, afraid to make any moral judgment at all. They were unwilling to criticize any situation originating in a different culture. They said, well, we might not like it, but maybe over there it's okay. Another said, it's just wrong to judge other cultures. No matter how I prodded, they wouldn't leave their non-judgmental position. I left that class shaking my head. It seemed clear to me that for some students, the lesson is acceptance of all things at all costs. Dr. Anderson concludes, the overriding message is never judge, never criticize, never take a position. Well, that's what's happened in today's Western civilization. Tolerance has run amok. It has filleted our backbone. We no longer know if there is even, if there even is a right and wrong. People have become so indoctrinated with moral relativism that they're unable or perhaps afraid to refer to evil as evil, even when it is so brazen as to slap us in the face. G.K. Chesterton wrote, tolerance is the virtue of the man who has lost his convictions, and we have lost ours. Having tossed aside our Bible without instructions from the Creator, no one today has the moral authority to render any kind of judgment, even in the face of blatant evil. The only thing modern man is sure of is that he's not really sure. There's no longer an ethical high ground. I like how Dorothy Sayers put it. She said, In the world it is called tolerance, but in hell it is called despair. The sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, Interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. Tolerance has added to our emptiness. If everything and everybody is right, then there is no real right and wrong. If all things matter equally, then nothing really matters. Life becomes hopeless. It's tragic enough that this fog of tolerance governs the secular domain, but God forbid that it becomes a norm in the church. We need Christian leaders in the church who are not afraid to stand on biblical principle and refuse to succumb to the mood of the culture. We mentioned earlier that the church in Corinth was like a ship on a vast ocean. The Corinthians were a tiny little outpost in an idolatrous and promiscuous culture. And that was fine, for ships are made to be in the water, and God would be faithful to keep the Corinthians afloat. The problem, though, is when water gets into the ship. Water isn't supposed to be in the ship. The church is to be in the world, but the world should never get into the church. And a boat that springs the leak is in trouble. This was the case with the church at Corinth, and in chapters 5 through 7, Paul plugs some leaks. Chapter 5 begins with Paul addressing a shocking problem in this church. He writes in verse 1, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. That a man has his father's wife. A member of this church was shacking up with his father's wife, with his stepmom. It was creepy, really. This was the sort of tale you'd sooner find on the Jerry Springer show than in the Church of Jesus Christ. We're talking raunchy, sordid, trashy antics. A man, a man's wife, and His son had conspired to betray him. They'd moved in together. They were living in adultery. And to top it all off, this son was running around broadcasting that he was a Christian. Now certainly the Bible prohibits this kind of incest. Leviticus 18 verses 7 and 8, Not only forbid having sex with your mother, but with your father's wife. It's specific, as is the case here in Corinth. Deuteronomy 27 verse 20 says it plainly, cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife. Yet not only did the Bible prohibit this kind of coupling, Paul says that this kind of sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. And that was saying something. The Gentile world, the Roman world, tolerated all kinds of debauchery and perversion. See, neither Greek nor Roman culture had any kind of expectation for sexual purity. When and with whom you had sex only mattered to the Jews and to the Christians. Yet incest was beyond even pagan bounds. It was so twisted that it didn't even make sense to amoral minds. And notice the expression here, has his father's wife. It refers to a continuous state, a permanent relationship. I mean, this wasn't just two people that got drunk at the family reunion. And woke up in a compromising situation. Slinked off the next day in shame. Now this was a man who knew exactly what he was doing. He had crossed a line that in the eyes of God and man was uncrossable. In denial of God's word. Even in denial of the mores of his own culture. He had convinced himself that he was right. And he wanted everybody else to applaud his lifestyle. To agree with him that what he was doing was okay. This man was coming to church. He was worshiping God. He was taking communion. This man probably sat on the front row. You know, it's interesting. Paul never addresses the woman. The implication is that she was not a Christian. She was not a member of this church. But the man, he was a fixture. We don't know it, but he could have even been an usher. Bible commentator Alan Redpath translates the phrase in verse 1, it is actually reported as it is commonly reported. or It's everywhere noised abroad. Literally, this is the talk of the town. Everyone in the city of Corinth knew of this situation. Paul mourned. The pagan community was appalled. The only folks happy about this was the Corinthian church. And here Paul isn't just upset over the sin in the camp, but he's asking this church, doesn't anyone see that this is staining your reputation? That this is wilting our witness? He writes to them in verse 2, And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Again, worse than the sin itself was the church's attitude toward this sin. They were not only tolerating this awful immorality, but they were proud of their tolerance. You can hear the Corinthians boast, Oh, Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. Far be it from us to tell somebody what's right and wrong. Oh, we're all about grace. Sounds like a 21st century rationalization. I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases verses 1 and 2. He renders it like this. One of your men is sleeping with his stepmother, and you're so above it all that it doesn't even faze you. Shouldn't this break your hearts? Shouldn't it bring you to your knees in tears? Shouldn't this person and his conduct be confronted and dealt with? The church was proud of their tolerance. They should have been mourning. The Greek word translated mourned in verse 2 is the same word used for grieving for the dead. The church in Corinth should have viewed this as a death. They should have seen this situation as a loss, a loss of purity, the death of virtue, of integrity, of holiness, of witness. Instead, the believers in Corinth were patting themselves on the back. What they should have been doing was falling on their knees and even getting in this man's face. Paul adds in verse 3, For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. Now, notice this. Without even speaking to this man personally, without even wanting to sit down or needing to sit down and hear his heart, without listening to his rationalizations, Paul says, I'm ready to render a verdict in this case right now. This is open and shut. Without being present in body or on the scene in person, Paul could judge. Why? Because the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the Son of God had already judged. You see, when our Lord Jesus told us, Judge not that you be not judged. He wasn't referring to all judgments. In the very same passage, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus told us, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Hey, last time I checked, the false prophet doesn't go around wearing a name tag. Hi, I'm a wolf. No. He has to be identified. How do we spot him? Jesus tells us, you will know them by their fruits. Some form of judgment is necessary. Truly, it's not for us to judge a man's motive or his calling or his attitude but we are to examine his deeds. We can inspect his fruit. Back in chapter 4, verse 5, Paul had warned the Corinthians not to make superfluous judgments of another man's ministry, but there was nothing superficial or trivial about this judgment. This was not an issue of culture or personal preference. This was not a gray matter. God addresses this in black and white. The Bible had already judged this situation. Here was a couple living in blatant immorality. Paul says it's high time this church dealt with their sin. I hope none of you are waiting on a Bible upgrade. Realize God is not on the verge of releasing Bible 2.0. God's Word needs no upgrades. It never gets updated. The Bible is timeless. It might be difficult for our rebellious hearts to obey it, but the Bible speaks truth to every age. The church at Corinth was either ignorant of God's word, or they had watered it down, or maybe even they were playing dumb, but as Christians, they were on the hook to obey just as we are today. Here's the truth. You can't tolerate what God labels sin and then claim to love God. If I love God, I'll rejoice in what brings him joy and I'll mourn over what causes him grief. Neither can I ignore sin, yet say I love others. Sin is sin because it's harmful. It damages us and other people. Understand, not one, not a single one of the prohibitions in your Bible is there just to prove who's boss. God is not on some kind of ego trip. He's not throwing his weight around to make a point. When he says no, it's for our own good. He loves us. All God's prohibitions are for our protection. I hope you know, pleasing God is also good for us. Why is it we think tolerance is a loving virtue while intolerance is cruel and mean and prejudicial? What kind of love is it that tolerates what's harmful and evil? If I really love someone, I'll be intolerant of what's detrimental to their spiritual and physical health. In fact, we're intolerant all the time in our society, and we accept this. You can't drink alcohol and drive a school bus. We're pretty intolerant of that. You can't text while you're driving. How intolerant. But how can it be loving to tolerate and encourage an act that God says is injurious to you and to society? If the leaders of Calvary Chapel or any church condoned immorality or tolerated false doctrine, if we didn't speak up and oppose what God says is wrong, we'd be guilty of malpractice. Here's an interesting comparison. Tolerance says, you must approve of what I do. But love replies, I must do something harder. I will love you even when I disapprove of your behavior and it offends me. Tolerance says, you must agree with me. But love replies, I'll do something harder. I'll tell you the truth even if you don't like me afterwards because I'm convinced it's the truth that will set you free. Tolerance says, you must allow me to go my way. Love replies, I must do something harder. I'll risk our friendship and plead with you to follow the right way. This week I went to the doctor for my annual exam. If you're interested, I passed. The doc told me I could lose a little weight. What's new? But other than that, the EKG and the blood work were A-OK. But what if there had been a problem? And yet the doctor lied to me. Oh, Sandy, you're the perfect specimen. Then I walked out the door and killed over with a heart attack. I mean, Kathy would be pretty mad. She'd want her money back for the bogus physical, no doubt about that. She'd at least go back in and says, hey, you need to credit this back on my credit card. Imagine the doctor on the witness stand being grilled by Kathy's attorney. Sandy was one jelly donut short of the big one, and you said he was okay. How'd you do that? The doctor answers, Well, when I go negative and I tell folks they're sick, they get offended. People don't like to hear that they're sick. Those kind of diagnoses, that's bad business. People don't come back. I want my office to be a safe place where people feel loved and accepted. Well, the attorney would challenge him. How can you call it love if you ignore the problems of at-risk patients? The doctor would be guilty of violating his oath. And that is exactly what some pastors and churches are doing today. They are violating their oath. Rather than tell people the truth, the goal is to avoid offending anybody. Too many pastors in churches are softening up the scripture and placating sinners rather than shooting straight. Paul was no advocate for spineless spirituality. Because he loved God and because he truly loved people, he wasn't afraid to stand up where God takes a stand. And he wasn't afraid to speak up where God had clearly spoken. Today's church needs to follow Paul's example. The Corinthians, they weakened their witness because they tolerated sexual immorality. Church discipline was needed. In verse 4, Paul issues a formal command to these Corinthians. He says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, Along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, let me reiterate this was not a struggling believer who has admitted his sin, and yet is sort of still mired down in the process of untangling a twisted situation. If that were the case, Paul would have approached it in an entirely different way. He would have been empathetic. He would have wanted to offer this man some help. We're all struggling sinners learning to live free. If that had been the case here, Paul would have suggested a different remedy. He would have wanted the Corinthians to be long-suffering toward this man, to be merciful in their treatment of him. But that was not the situation. Here was a Christian who had deliberately chosen to ignore God's word and live in open defiance to God's will. This was intolerable. This man was living with his stepmom. He wasn't trying to untangle himself from the world around him and run to the Lord. He was trying to entangle the church with the evil of this world. I don't know about you, but when I finally get to church at the end of the week, I've had enough of this world. It's lifestyles, it's attitudes, they weary me. I long for an environment where the focus is on heaven. We were honoring God's word. Why well, go to a church that just wants to act like the world? That didn't make sense. The church needs to be an oasis in the desert, a respite from this world, not a reflection of its evil. It was time for the church in Corinth to clean house. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus laid out church discipline in three steps. He told his disciples that if a brother sins, another brother should go to him and seek to restore him. If he refuses to listen, then the guy who went should return with two or three other brothers. In other words, try again. But if the man refuses to hear the two or three, then he should be brought before the whole church and encouraged to repent. And if that final step... Also fails to convince him, then he should get the boot. You've heard of the right hand of Christian fellowship? Well, there's also a right foot of disfellowship. Yet Jesus was clear the goal at each stage of church discipline is to bring the defiant brother to repentance. Even if he's booted from the body, he's being delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's not his life. That's his sinful tendencies. That's a good thing, the destruction of the flesh. His flesh is his independent, stubborn, selfish side. It's the I know best, I can do it on my own attitude. His flesh needs to be destroyed, rather yet crucified. Paul is saying that if he wants to do it by himself, well then let him have at it for a while. Let him taste the consequences of his sinful choices. If sin is what he wants, then give him his fill. Never forget, the prodigal son realized the error of his ways, not in his father's house, but while he was slopping hogs in the pig pen. Apparently, when a person is part of a church family, certain protections are inherent. They're surrounded by support and encouragement and resources and love. To a degree, the church shelters a person from the magnitude of their sin. A person's connections to the body of Christ, even if they're tenuous, still provide a spiritual buffer. Remember, Satan couldn't attack Job with the heavy artillery until God had removed his hedge of protection from around Job. Satan is a cruel taskmaster. His only desire is to steal and kill and destroy. And he's somewhat restricted as long as that person remains part of the body of Christ. It's church discipline that removes the safety net, that allows that person to hit rock bottom. She or he now has to deal with their own stuff. You see, Paul's wise and loving advice was to turn this man out into the storm. Let him learn the hard way how much he needs to humble himself and submit to God. The church does a person a disservice when we keep them from reaping the full brunt of what they've sowed. And we know this discipline worked, by the way. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 2, verse 8, he asks the church to receive this man again into their fellowship. Paul writes, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Apparently, the Christians had obeyed Paul's command, and they had kicked this brother out, and it had had the desired effect. His season of separation brought about an attitude of repentance Church discipline is never easy, but it's necessary. And it often achieves the desired results. In verse 6, Paul addresses how prideful the Corinthians had been regarding their tolerance. He says, your glorying is not good. The blatant sin allowed in Corinth wasn't pleasing to God, and it wasn't loving to man. There was nothing good about this. I mean, if your son is allergic to bee stings... And you love your son, then you're not gonna be real fond of bees, are you? Paul knew it's impossible for us to be for God and to love people without being against sin. He warns us in verse 6 Do you know, or do you not know, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven or yeast is what causes the bread to rise. It influences by puffing up. And that's why throughout the Bible, leaven serves as a type of sin. For this is what sin does. It puffs us up. It inflates our pride. Sin starts out small, but it works beneath the surface. It eventually permeates and sours the whole lump. Sin is like a cancer in the body of Christ. Blatant sin is a malignancy that if allowed to spread can destroy the whole body. Hypocrisy sours the life and witness of a church. This is why, like cancer, stubborn sins need to be detected early. They need to be cut out. Allow rebellion to linger. Let it form a precedent in the church. Watch it get into the bloodstream of the church, and the damage can be irreparable. The worst approach to take with cancer is tolerance. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And the same is true of unrepentant sin. We need to deal with it before it metastasizes. There's an African proverb that reads, an injury to the head is an injury to the whole person, is an injury to the whole family, is an injury to the compound, is an injury to the village, is an injury to the kingdom, is an injury to the world. When churches tolerate blatant sin, it taints and discredits us all. It's a poor witness to this world. Therefore, verse 7, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. Now here's a reference to the Jewish feast of Passover. Each year, Jews the world over, they gather around their table, their family table, and they celebrate their exodus from Egypt. They engage in a ceremony that's full of meaning. The expression, purge out the old leaven, speaks of one aspect of this ritual. A week prior to the Passover, all the leaven in the house is collected, and it's gathered together and it's burned. The house is cleansed or it's purged from leaven. All of the corrupting influences are removed from this house. So that on the special night, when the family sits down to eat of the lamb that was slaughtered for their salvation, they can do so free of any contaminating influences. They want their worship to be heartfelt and genuine. They don't want anything to distract from the love for each other and for God that they feel. And this is how we as Christians should live our lives. And this is what should be true when we come together. He says, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Passover is a type of Jesus. His blood was spilled so that our sin can be pardoned. Judgment now passes over us because of what Christ has done. Now we, the church, should sit down with our family and we should enjoy our salvation, but only after we have rid our house of the leaven of hypocrisy and rebellion that can contaminate our fellowship and distract us from our love for God and for each other. Verse 8, therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And then Paul pens verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle. Apparently there had been a previous letter from Paul. We call the letter that we're reading 1 Corinthians But it could have been 2 Corinthians or even 3 Corinthians. We just know that there was an earlier letter. It's interesting, the most readily available form of communication in the Roman world of the first century was the courier. The Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, guaranteed safe roads and safe travel. Couriers were able to shuttle letters back and forth across the empire. And this allowed the apostles the first Christians to stay in touch with one another and the churches that they had planted. They could answer questions. They could resolve controversies through this free flow of information and this exchange of letters. Some of the letters were specific to time and to place. Other letters were universal, applying to all the church in every era. Those are the letters that now make up the New Testament. Here, a few Bible commentators suggest that Uh, This earlier letter was actually a portion of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 6.14-7.1 was Paul's missing letter. You can go back and read it. It does seem to fit. Others, though, have concluded that this was a correspondence that's now been lost. Either way, Paul tells us what was relevant in this previous letter. He had written to them not to keep company with sexually immoral people. We know that. Bad company corrupts good morals. But here Paul qualifies his concern. He writes now in verse 10, Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. The Corinthians had it backwards. These believers were turning up their noses at their heathen neighbors while they were ignoring the hypocrisy in their own ranks. Paul tells the church not to shun the person who's lost in his sin. Jesus, remember, was called a friend of sinners. And in that spirit, he wants us to build bridges and to cultivate friendships and to find common ground with lost people. The phrase Paul uses in verse 9 to keep company literally means to mingle. If by not mingling with the sexually immoral, Paul means the pagans in this town, then the Christians would have had to drop out of society altogether. For everybody in Corinth was a pagan and was sexually immoral. If they were going to be a witness to their world, they needed to be able to mingle with these pagans. Think about this. The hill of Aphrodite stood just above the city of Corinth. Every night, temple prostitutes came down from the mountain and plied their trade in the city streets. Illicit sex was part of the worship of Corinth. I mean, your child's public school teacher his little league baseball coach, the councilman, the city councilman, the guys on the bowling team. None of these people raised an eyebrow at going to the city square on a Friday night and spending an hour with a prostitute. It was just a way of life in Corinth. Paul didn't want to create a distance between the Christians and the unbelievers. Paul hoped that the believers in Corinth would shine their light into this darkness, that they would lead people to Jesus. He wanted them to mix and mingle with pagans and point them in a new direction. No, the person the Corinthians needed to avoid wasn't the rowdy sinner, but the rebellious saint. It was the brother who was living this bogus brand of Christianity. That's the person they should stay away from. The danger to a church's health is not rubbing up against the corrupt people, but it's hanging out with the carnal people. It's sad, but down through the centuries, the church has made a habit of picking the wrong friends. We buddy up to hypocrites, people we ought not to have a meal with that we need to shun while we keep our distance from the very folks who need us most. We're guilty of an unhealthy isolationism. In Byzantine, in medieval times, the serious, spiritually driven Christians, they clustered themselves away in monasteries separated from the world to try and please God. What pleases God more is not isolation, but infiltration. No matter how dark this world grows, no matter how raunchy this world gets, we should never lose sight that the lost world is not our enemy. It's our mission field. Our enemy is the hypocrite within, not the heathen without. When the church views the people that God wants us to reach as the enemy, we have become worthless to God. When we come out of the world and come to Christ, we're not supposed to slam the door behind us. We're supposed to turn around with love and a helping hand. But that's not what happens with some Christians. Some saints become snobs. And the immoral people, the irreligious people, get the impression that the church is a club for clean cuts rather than a hospital for messed ups. I heard a sad statistic. By the time a person has been a Christian for two years, usually he or she has lost all meaningful relationships with unbelievers. No wonder we're making such little difference in the world. For all practical purposes, it is an inadvertent monasticism. After a few years, our whole world revolves around church and Christians and Christian stuff. And we lose opportunities to hone friendships with non Christians. Don't misunderstand, I believe in the importance of Christian fellowship, but when you're connecting to a church, it doesn't mean you're disconnecting from the world. We become so worried and fearful about the world infecting us with its evil that we don't cultivate opportunities where we can impact society with good. Oh, it's just easier to hang out with Christians in a temptation-free environment than it is to rub shoulders with lost people, especially on their own turf. That could be risky. Yeah, like Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth. That too was risky. Or, Or like the Christian who took a risk and reached out to you and led you to Christ. That was pretty risky too, wasn't it? Maybe it's time for some of us to stop playing it safe and take a risk. Our enemy is not the sinner without Jesus. He or she can't change if they wanted to. They lack the power. They need the truth of the gospel. Our nemesis, the greatest threat to our faith, is the person who claims to know Jesus, yet holds on to his or her sin with no desire to change. Paul says the church's health and our witness to the community is better served when we shun the hypocrite until he repents. Verse 12 wraps it up. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. (laughs) You know, I get weary of pastors who are always railing on the ungodly out there. They're always on a soapbox pointing out what's wrong with the world. What do you expect? Why would you expect sinners not to sin? Why would we expect a lost world not to act lost and confused? I'm not surprised by the craziness of this world. In fact, sometimes I'm surprised it's not worse than it is. I'm certainly not appalled by it. The world is lost. Most people don't know God or His truth. They're not firing on all cylinders. They got a life, but they lack the instructions. Our place is not to judge this lost world, but it's to love and to reach people for Jesus. Introduce them to their creator and to their savior. If we don't do that, they'll get judged soon enough. If The church wants to judge someone. We need to judge ourselves. As Peter said, let judgment begin at the house of God. Once we've cleaned up our own house, then we'll be a more winsome and effective witness to others. And when the Lord Jesus does return to judge this wicked world, if we've done our job, hopefully there'll be fewer folks to judge.